Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Thursday, May 5th, 2022. Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton here to talk about what we love to talk about each and every week, and that is Formula One. And Mark, after years, literally years of waiting, it's happening. Miami, it is literally happening right now, 14 hours away somewhat, I think, until uh, practice starts tomorrow on Friday. Are you excited? It's I'm surreal. It- right? I've, I've had mixed emotions all week, but I think I'm at that point now where I, I'm starting to get really excited. And and it's funny because we did the Spaces chat earlier tonight and we were talking so much about everything that's been happening off the track. The gondolas, the fact that the track is going to race under an overpass and under an on-ramp, the fact that there's this fake lagoon that they built so they could position some boats in front of a big <laughs> video screen. We've been talking about all this stuff off the track, but it it's only awesome, right? dawned on me earlier today that... There is free practice, just like you described a couple of moments ago tomorrow. Today, for those of you that are tuning in on Friday, it's going to be really exciting to see. One, because it's a spectacle in and of itself, the track, the event, the way that it's been constructed. And of course, none of us have any idea as to what to expect on the track. Is it going to be like Baku? Is it going to be like Jeddah? Is it going to be a combination? Is it going to be something entirely new that we haven't seen before? It looks like the weather should be dry. Although, of course, in South Florida, you could have that mid-afternoon thunderstorm at any time, which could mix things up. But I think I think based on the tone of my voice and the tenor of my voice, I, I'm pretty excited. <laughs> You're like a, at a completely different octave of excitement uh, <laughs> <laughs> compared to uh, compared to you. But you know, I was thinking just as you were talking there, it just kind of um, it kind of reminds me of what's been a recurring theme over the last couple of years, going back to 2020 with like the bizarre COVID rescheduled year and everything. Is how many times have we sat down and talked about? Okay, this is the first time that we're racing here, and we don't know what so to expect. So true. It, it has been, it, you know, if there's anything that's good that's come out of the pandemic, this has been one positive because we, we've had the opportunity to go at race at places that we never expected we go to. We've gone back to tracks like Imola that we never expected would come back. We've seen new tracks come online like Jetta, like you mentioned like miami it's actually been a pretty exciting time and formula one has done a pretty decent job well, of navigating well, through covid right let's do that so i i think it's probably worth revisiting some of the tracks that were not even remotely on the horizon when covid started so we went to portugal yeah we went to imola like you mentioned we went to Mugello. we went back yep. to turkey we've been yep. to qatar we did the outer ring at Bahrain. Now we're yep. going to Miami. What else am I missing? I feel like I'm missing a few. I feel like you're missing something too, but I just can't think what uh, we might be missing. I, I mean, that's the, the the really cool thing. I mean, there's been what like seven, eight races that are new to the uh, to, to the calendar, 
And but but this one just has to be the crown jewel. Everybody's been expecting this one to happen. And it seemed like it was in limbo for the longest time. I mean, heck, even a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about, well, there's this last minute uh, legal challenge. This the whole thing may actually not happen. Fortunately, it didn't play out that way, but it it just took a long time to get up and running. And like you say, it's almost a little bit surreal, especially when we're getting text messages like from like uh, some some good friends of ours, like Magnus Greaves, for, like, for, from Tim, just telling us. I, Tim literally just texted ten minutes before we sat down to record the show. He's like, "Dudes, I'm in my Miami. This is like nothing I've ever seen." Ultimate hanger because he doesn't elaborate on that and he hasn't texted <laughs> <laughs> texted and, and back. From- so. And from a guy who has traveled the world and seen virtually every Grand Prix himself yeah. and, and Magnus Graves, you know, you and I sat down with Magnus back in January because at the time we were talking about, hey, can we collaborate? Can we find a way to get down to Miami with them? And that ultimately didn't work out, which is fine. Um, but one of the comments that he made at that time was, look, F1 is going to be changed by Miami. Miami is going to fundamentally change the sport. And based on everything we've heard from him this week and from other people, that seems to be the message that's resonating out of Miami right now is that this is a game changer for the sport. And when we were doing our spaces chat earlier tonight, we were talking about the fact that, you know, you've been to a race at the Nürburgring, you've been to Spain, I've been to Silverstone. We've both been to plenty of Grand Prix. But Mm -hmm. if there's one thing that I would say about a lot of these traditional European races, they're kind of bare bones. You're going there to watch Formula One. It's not going to be comfortable. It's probably not going to be warm. The food selection is (laughs) going to be terrible. The beer is going to be warm, which is normal in in the UK. In the UK, The beer is going to be warm and the merch is going to be expensive. But all of a sudden you get a race like this. And of course, this was... This was preluded by some of the great things that we've seen coming out of the Middle East. But this race takes the spectacle and the experience and the mm-hmm. level of comfort to an entirely different world. And I think I think this is going to change the sport in a couple of ways. One is that it's going to force other races to significantly step up their game in terms yep. of the festival type atmosphere and the comfort and the services that will be available. And I think... Miami's being criticized for this, but it is finding incredibly new and surprising ways to monetize the experience. Nobody Mm -hmm. is going to Miami thinking that this is a bargain. It's like going to Disney World. You go there knowing you are going to pour out 10 times more money than you expected, and you are (laughs) going to thank them for taking your money. And I think Miami's that experience, but I think all of a sudden, all of these more traditional tracks, whether it's Coda or Silverstone or or France, or Spa, or Spain, I think they're going to look at this race and go, oh my God, we've got some serious work to do because they've created a new benchmark of expectation. And then on top of this, a year from now, we're in Vegas. And if every indication is true, Vegas is going to take it to an entirely different level that we didn't even see in Miami. Well, that's the thing, right? And you raise a really good point. Uh, Coda's going to have to step their game up because, I mean, there was a phenomenal turnout for the U.S. Grand right? Prix last year. 380,000 people. And there was a lot of criticism because, they, like a lot of people said, they really felt like it was kind of thrown together at the last minute. Like totally. The merch sold out really quickly and there was terrible selections. There were like the food lineups went on forever, etc. And it was interesting, too, just, uh, you know, talking to Magnus over the last couple of weeks and months, and he just keeps saying this is going to be a game changer. This is going to change F1. And I haven't really been following up with too much what's going on 
on off the track uh, in and around the, the Grand Prix because partially I don't want to make myself really, really sad because we're not there and I just don't want to, well, I know I'll end up jealous for all the people that are there and that's just not a good thing to do. But, you know, joke aside, what was it Magnus was saying that there's like three competing fan fests around yeah. the city and that like unofficial things that kind of like uh, have popped up and it sounds like that this has become like a real thing in the city of Miami. And I, I really hope that this is like, the real kickoff that really is the beginning of a real thing, not just in Miami, but across the country. And then, like you say, we get Vegas coming online next year and they're going to level up on top of what Miami's doing. And I, I can really, I mean, Vegas is Vegas and they're always going to be glitzy and glamorous and do what Vegas does best. Right. But Miami's kind of got this little bit sort of like posh kind of, uh, you know, glitzy kind of um, maybe not quite a, a Monaco esque kind of vibe, but close to it. Right. I think, you know, there, there's a certain argument to, to, to be made for that so they're not going to be one to be outdone and you know i I don't have anything against uh you know what they're trying to do a coda i mean if you want to you know keep it real for lack of a better word but they're going to have to step their game up in whichever way you know if they're going to keep it on brand that's fine but whatever they're going to do they're going to have to step it up just to to at least kind of keep pace to what's happening in miami and then vegas next year one of the criticisms that has spread around the internet this week about Miami is that it's expensive. It's expensive. You know, at the end of the day, Stephen Ross and the group that's organizing this race have absolutely yep. no obligation to make this an affordable race. It's not going to be attended by 380,000 people over the course of three days like Coda was. It's going to be a significantly smaller crowd simply because they don't have the, the physical capacity to ingest that many people into the track, mm -hmm. but they can absolutely charge whatever they want. And I think what they're going to try to discover is the exact tolerance that people are willing to pay and they're going to charge exactly that, not a penny less. They are going to find the absolute peak of what people are willing to accept in terms of pricing. Yes. Yep. Somebody had sent some photos through earlier today of the merch pricing at the track and they're like, it's crazy. Like F1 t-shirt starting at 150 to $200 US and a hat <laughs> is $100 to $150 US with the exception of a Haas hat, which was $30. I don't joke. I'm not joking. But wow. that's not particularly crazy. You and I have seen expensive merch, but they're not under any obligation to make this event affordable. And just to backtrack a little bit, and we've talked about this quite a few times in the past, but the origins of the Miami Grand Prix actually predate Liberty buying the sport. When Liberty mm -hmm. was working to buy Formula One from Bernie and his group in 2015, 2016, there was actually a competing group that was being led by the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund and Stephen Ross, who's the owner of the Miami Dolphins. And they, by all accounts, were in the lead. Uh, ultimately, they decided to drop their bid because Liberty gave them a sweet deal and said, look, if you drop your bid for Formula One, we'll give you a race sanction fee free. And also, Mr. Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund, we will give you a race. So Liberty came through on both of their commitments. They gave Miami a race. They gave Qatar a race. But the unique thing about the Miami Grand Prix is there's no sanctioning fee. So typically, if you're going to host a Formula One race, you negotiate with Bernie in the past or you negotiate with Liberty on the turn of the deal and how much you're going to pay to Formula One. So it could be mm -hmm. 20 million, 50 million dollars. But you know that I my outlay, my capital outlay is the cost of setting up the track and that 20 million dollar fee I've got to pay to Liberty. I have to recoup that in terms of sick ticket sales and all of these other kind of revenues that I can generate on the race weekend, minus merch, which is owned by F1. In the case of Miami, 
there is no sanctioning fee. This is a freebie for Stephen Ross. And it's understood that there's some sort of unique arrangement from revenue sharing, maybe on tickets or something like that. But this is should be an absolute cash cow cash cow for Stephen Ross and the race organizers and really for the city because one of the things that I'd read as well is there are tens of thousands of people coming to Miami this weekend not for the NHL playoffs not for the NBA playoffs not for the race but just to be there for the atmosphere and the party uh, I, I'm so excited. I can't wait to see what happens, not just on uh, Friday, but you know, especially on Saturday and qualifying and then on Sunday for the race. I'm really expecting to see a spectacle like we've never seen in our lifetime when it comes to North American sports. I mean, we're all used to the World Series. We're all used to the NBA Finals. We're used to the Super Bowl and things like that. And um, th- this is going to be a completely different event. It's just I-, I don't know what to expect, but I'm just preparing to have my mind blown. Let me ask you a question because I'm going to sneeze. So before I sneeze, let me ask you a question. (laughs) Clearly, F1 has has designs on having a couple of crown jewels on the calendar. With Miami, with, with Las Vegas next year, if you look at the 2023 calendar, what would you argue are the three or four crown jewels of the Formula One calendar? I would say Monaco. It was got to be one because that's almost like the spiritual home of uh, Formula One. Uh, Miami, I could see one. Vegas. And then I'm going to say Singapore because I, I know that. Yeah, Singapore. Yeah. And we're, we're back to Singapore. So for all of you that are, are new to Formula One and have really only started watching the last few years, first of all, mm-hmm. welcome. But you're going to get your first taste of Singapore. And if, if rumors are to believe, we may actually race in Singapore on consecutive weekends this year to make up for the absence, the very fortunate, and I'm very thankful for the absence of, of Russia on the calendar. But interesting, mine would be, my crown jewels would be Silverstone. My mm-hmm. bias at full effect, I, I think Monaco, whether we love the racing or not, I think it's yep. important to the calendar. And sure. I would argue that that Miami could become that thing. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how Miami and Coda and Vegas coexist on, on the calendar because you've got some space between Vegas and the other American races. You've got a couple of weeks between or between a couple of weeks between Miami and Montreal, mm-hmm. but Coda and and Vegas are going to be crammed pretty close together at the back end of the calendar, and it'll be interesting to see how much interest can sustain from one race to another, especially potentially if they're back to back or if they're in the same calendar month. But my answer would be Monaco, Silverstone, and Miami. Yeah, Silverstone for me is like. Um I would say it, it's a, a crown jewel, but more on the the, the, the racing side, right? That's fair. When it, when it, That's fair. You know, I, I mean, because it, I mean, it's out in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, it, it's it's not. And I'm looking at these other ones; they're all basically street circuits, right? And that they're kind of destination places. They've all got a unique kind of glitzy glamour to all of them, right? And uh, some of the other ones, I mean. I would probably have like two categories, racing crown jewels and then sort of <laughs> destination crown jewels. I so it. I guess you could kind of split that that discussion a couple of uh, my, different ways. My argument for Silverstone would be one, because I'm incredibly biased and and cue the hateful comments in our Apple podcast reviews, but I'm incredibly biased <laughs> and because I, I thoroughly enjoy it. But I think it's more symbolic of the fact that seven of the Formula One teams 
are based within an hour of that that track. That sure. that is really the heartland of motorsports, where seven of the teams are based, as I mentioned, and it's where countless suppliers are based. And I think for all of those teams, this is their their home track, and it's really important. Although I feel like we've been rambling, we probably are due for a break, hey. Well, no, let's uh, let, we can go for a little while yet here. And why don't we talk first about because the big news and we've talked about this seemingly for months and months and months, but uh, the VW group finally confirmed that they are, are going to take the Formula One plunge and come and enter the sport in 2026. I mean, there's been a lot of smoke around this fire, but I feel like that this announcement came Six months later than perhaps we were expecting, because if you remember, Mark, we I think we talked about this at the beginning of December or either the end of November last year, that the VW Group board was due to meet and have like a, a big discussion around this. And there was virtually radio silence after that. And it, it's kind of stumbled along in the ensuing half year or so and it would still sort of pop up in the news every once in a while and we've kind of perpetuated we've talked about it uh, quite a bit over the months especially in the off season when it's fun and you need to uh you know, generate a little bit of content but i I'm, I'm excited to hear that they're entering the sport but it seems to me almost a little anticlimactic based on all those you know you know what i just laid out that it seemed like it was a almost expected such a long time ago it's it's weird because on the one hand i agree with you that it's incredibly anticlimactic but at the same time if this all fell apart i would have been equally as unsurprised because we've done this song and dance with the volkswagen group before we've right. been down this path we thought we were close the sport bent over i don't like that phrase but the sport bent itself into awkward positions to accommodate <laughs> the Volkswagen Auto Group, and it didn't happen. This time, it just it felt like it was more likely to happen. Four years ago, the timing wasn't right. The company was still recovering from the Dieselgate scandal. Yeah. Economically, they weren't in the right position. And this time around, VW Group CEO Herbert Dies says, and he specifically said, that their principal principal motives for getting involved this time was due to F1's emphasis on sustainability, the explosive growth of the sport in the United States and Asia, and perhaps mm -hmm. most importantly, F1's increasing popularity amongst younger viewers. So it's one thing if you have a ton of viewers, but if you're in the marketing sponsorship business, you want to know who those viewers are. And, and I joke mm -hmm. often time that the bad demo is those plus 50-year-olds. Like when you watch baseball, and there's a lawn care commercial every 30 seconds, that's bad <laughs> business. That is not the demographic you want. But if you have a lot of 20 and 30 somethings watching the sport, you mm -hmm. want to be involved because those are specifically the people that are buying Volkswagen Tiguans and Audi S4s or aspiring to own an Audi S4. That's specifically who you want to market. So I'm yep. incredibly excited about this one. I think it's going to get really interesting now because we've only been able to speculate on what their entry into the sport looks like we we can probably confidently say that Porsche is going to partner with with Red Bull in some manner and take over their engine development division 
it's totally unclear how Audi is going to enter the sport. And even that's new because a couple of weeks ago, you and I talked about the fact that for the longest time, the suspicion or the expectation was they were going to enter the sport. It was going to be a joint partnership and they were going to develop a single power unit. Now mm-hmm. we know that Porsche is going to develop a power unit and Audi is going to develop a power unit. But it's also now rapidly speculated that Audi wants to enter the sport not as a engine provider or an engine supplier to a team as Porsche is expected to do. They want to buy a team in its entirety. Hmm. That, that's amazing. You know, I mean, it's, uh, I just, uh, well, I mean, there, there's a couple of uh, suspects right off the top of the list. I mean, Haas is one, Williams is possibly one, although that would probably kill me if that ever happened. And the Williams name disappeared from Formula right. One and the love that I have for that team. I mean, right. going back to like all these nostalgic feelings that I have from my childhood, but those are just a, a couple. I mean, there was, uh, you know, I think it was a bit of a clickbaity thing that, uh, that, that Lawrence Stroll was, uh, I think he was like a one word. Ad- well, why did you tell the story? Because you, you texted me this afternoon and we were kind of like virtually eye rolling in our, in our, in our, in our chat there and our WhatsApp chat. So, so you tell that story. Only, Yeah. So last week when we were on with Tim, or maybe it was the week before, there was a story that came out indicating that Audi had had conversations about purchasing Aston Martin and, and Tim really kind of vetoed that one with argument being that, look, Lawrence Stroll isn't going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars or invest hundreds of millions of dollars in this team only to spin it off. But there was a sure. super clickbaity article that you and I had both reviewed today. And the title was really, um, I think it was something to the effect that Lawrence Stroll discusses potential Audi purchase of Aston Martin. And when you dig through it, a reporter had specifically asked the questions like, have you had conversations with Audi? And his quote was literally, yes. Meaning that at the end of the day, Audi had literally just reached out to him to talk about buying the team. He didn't talk about selling it. He didn't talk about having any interest in selling it. He didn't talk about how far the discussions went. He literally just answered the question, which was, has Audi reached out to you? And yes, they have. So we know Audi's reached out to Williams. We know they've had conversations with McLaren. We know they've had conversations with Sauber. um, And now we know that they've had conversations with Aston Martin. But of course, if they've got billions of dollars to spend and they want to get into F1, you're going to knock on everything. Every possible door. My hey, hope, my hope is all, they go with Sauber. I was just gonna say, for for all we know, somebody at Audi was uh, like was messaging Lawrence about the the latest meme somebody posted in the F1 manufacturer's WhatsApp group chat. It's like, bro, <laughs> dude, did you see that? Lol, lol. And uh, yeah, okay. Anyways, I'm just joking. But yeah, I mean, that was a bit clickbaity. But I mean, th- yeah. Sauber slash Alfa Romeo is another uh, candidate. So that will be fascinating to see how they do uh, take the drop into the sport. I do have a couple more uh, thoughts on some of those comments that uh, that were made. So I want to talk about that. But uh, first of all, we're going to take a real quick break here to hear a quick uh, message from our sponsors. We'll be right back to pick it up on the other side. So don't go away. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. Whether you're into speed, power or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the podcast. As always, up to speed with Formula One, Mr. Mark Daly, Mr. Mark Hamilton here talking about the obvious news the expected news obvious is a little bit too obvious the expected news that the the Vaudi, audi audi that's like a weird mashup vw group has decided to take the plunge and enter the sports under the guise of audi and porsche in 2026 and some of the comments that were made by the vw group ceo i thought were really quite uh, interesting uh, you did point out a number of things the uh, f1's uh, commitment to sustainability the uh, the younger uh, demographic the uh, the explosive growth both in the USA and Asia, and what was the uh, the other one? There was there there was one young more demo. There for, young demo, yeah, the young demo, and that that was the one that uh, really sort of stuck out because there's one quote that Bernie Ecclestone made, and I I remember listening to this. Oh, it would be at least five or six years. Well, it's probably uh, before that. That's maybe 2015-ish. And the question was, or it came up in the conversation, was that his idea of the ideal Formula One fan, or maybe why he wasn't going after a younger demo at that time. And his uh, it, it was such a flippant, very nonchalant uh, Bernie Ecclestone replies. Like, well, I'm not really interested in those people because... You know, my ideal fan is, you know, like a, like an older guy that's already made his fortune and has tons of money that he can splash out on the sport. And I'm like, well, that's great if that guy's 70 plus. So maybe you've got him as like a legit fan for maybe another 10 or 15 years. But, you know, it's uh, I thought it was just uh, so short sighted. I mean. To, to completely ignore, like, I mean, you don't want to be like exclusive of any segments of the population or demographic, but to just, to, you know, really target, you know, say the 1% for the lack of a better term <laughs> just seems so silly. And I mean, I, I, obviously, Formula One has um, started to thrive under new uh, management and leadership, but also... And the other things too, yeah. The, the the commitment to sustainability. I mean, we've talked about it, and we've we've really speculated and really had some fun talking about what the power units might look like in twenty twenty six. We know that they're going to be uh, you know, really pushing towards these exotic hybrid biofuels and all these things, which is really really cool. So that's one interesting piece of technology that we're going to see. But the the engines themselves post twenty twenty six is going to be really really cool to to see as well. And I mean, we're sitting here with bated breath because we don't know when that news will drop. It could be tomorrow, it could be next year, it could be in two years. But I mean, the thing is, when you're we're, we're sitting here, we're almost halfway through twenty twenty two right now, and it blows my mind to say that 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 really isn't a long time if they're going to completely blow up the the current engine format and reintroduce something else these power unit uh, the these 
manufacturers, they want to know what the spec is so they can get down, they can start designing, building, testing, and developing these power units. So I would say that the clock is very much ticking on the uh, on with Formula One to make a decision uh, so the teams and the, the manufacturers uh, can get down uh, to work. So, And then finally, the, the, the last comment there that he made about the explosive growth in Asia and the USA, I mean, talk about two vast, virtually untapped markets. And I guess that kind of goes sort of ties into the the whole comment uh, that Bernie made just uh, at the beginning of my little spiel here. But again, I mean, it seems it seems kind of obvious now, but I, I guess if you you know, you're making money hand over fist and you don't need to see the need to make even more money when you've already made as much money as you're ever going to be able to spend or do anything with. So, you know, what, what's the motivation to do anything if the, the sport's running the way that you want it, right? Definitely. You make a really great point just on that drivetrain piece. And maybe that's one of the surprising things about this announcement is they didn't wait until the engine spec was set in stone. And that was always the expectation. Now, let's be honest, we haven't heard an official individual announcement from Volkswagen sub-brands. Like we haven't seen a statement from Audi. We haven't seen a statement from Porsche. We probably won't until that new power unit formula is set in stone. But you are absolutely right. And I was just looking at a calendar. In my head, it's still 2020. And 2026 right? is a long, long, totally. long way away. And it's yeah. 2022. We're halfway 2022. So it's unlikely they're going to form- finalize that formula anytime soon. So really, they've got 23, 24, and 25. There's no development time. Like that is when you have that completed power unit on the dyno and you're taking mm-hmm. it out to the track. So really, they've got two years to figure to figure this out. That's not a lot of time for Alpine and for Mercedes and of course for the other teams that are already developing engines. That's an incredibly short amount of time for somebody like Audi or somebody like Porsche that's coming in and starting really from scratch in terms of their familiarity with the Formula One landscape. It almost makes you wonder if uh, behind closed doors, they've had these uh, discussions. It's like, well, we want to come into the sport, but we want some guarantee as where you guys are going with the the power units for 2026. And maybe Formula One's come back to them like, okay, well, we haven't ironed out all the details, but we're 90% certain it's going to look like X, Y, and Z, right? That I, I have to... F- I have to tell myself, or maybe I'm trying to convince myself, because otherwise it would seem too outrageous that that they have to have some idea. Otherwise, they've basically sold uh, Audi and and VW and Porsche. You know, it's just a bunch of ma- magic beans, and I can't believe that they would be that unprepared. They they must would, know where they're going with this. Is where what I I'm would also at. argue that that kind of commitment needs to go both ways, right? That, hey, we will commit to you these fundamental principles of the new power unit. The MGUH is gone. It's going to create more electrification. It's going to run on a sustainable fuel. It's going to be a compact V6 engine with a turbocharger. Like They're probably making commitments about those principles, but at the same time, they're probably going to the Volkswagen group and saying, look, if we're going to welcome you into the family, we need a commitment from you. It can't be a three-year commitment and you flame out and you leave the sport and leave us holding the bag. We're expecting a seven, eight, nine, ten-year commitment from you as well, because I think in the past we've seen instances where teams come in. We saw it with Toyota; they came in for seven years, and then they fled the sport. BMW was in for five years, and Honda was in, and they're out, and then they're in, and then they're out, and then they're in, and then they're kind of out before they fully take off again. I think Liberty's probably looking, and the FIA is probably looking for a comparable commitment that if we are going to completely upend our power unit formula to accommodate you, you need to make a commitment to us as well. Yep. 
Yeah, totally. I, 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 I com- I'm completely on board with that because it doesn't serve anybody. It, it, it serves neither side. If uh, Formula One can't commit to what the what the power unit is, or not willing to make um, concessions uh, to to attract somebody like the VW Group. But then on the flip side, if they're going to come in, like you say, they don't want them to leave after two or three years. They want a medium to long term commitment. And hopefully they'll uh, be successful. But, you know, like I say, it's going to be interesting to see how Audi gets their foot in the door. So kind of makes you wonder what, what's going to transpire and if there's going to be any big announcements coming in the weeks and months ahead. I only had this realization recently as well. We bought a couple of years ago a brand new Volkswagen Tiguan R-Line and we actually love it. And we were so we were coming from a Range Rover Sport, which was probably not the most economical and family-friendly car, even though it's a big SUV. And the mm-hmm. Volkswagen, which was from kind of like a, a brand perception perspective, a pretty significant step down, we couldn't, and I promise I'm not being paid. I am not getting a rebate on my servicing. <laughs> I'm not getting a free set of tires, but we couldn't be happier with the car as a package. It looks great, which is always going to be subjective, but the build quality and the internal finishings are really, really nice. So it's kind of yeah. cool that, hey, we, we're going to own a car that is attached to a manufacturer that competes in in motorsports. So we'll have this kind of invested interest in them being successful because we own one of their we own one of their products. And I would definitely, I would definitely state that we would be in the market for another Volkswagen again because I don't think I could sell my Are wife you sure on another you're not Range getting, Rover Sport. You're not getting paid to say this? Like the next thing you're going to get Das Auto. Do you see my like- hair and my like stained <laughs> covered hoodie right now? No, I'm definitely not being compensated by the Volkswagen Auto Group. Yeah, you don't look quite as polished as you usually do, <laughs> but I know that you've uh, been like birdie the candle at both ends. So, hey, who am I to judge because I'm I'm rocking the hat tonight because I, underneath, I the tell- lids, I, I'm underneath the lid, I don't look uh, that polished either. I so. always know how your week's going based on whether you've got the cap because if your week's going good the cap's off the hair is flowing it looks great but if you've got the cap on like okay this week's been a grind and he's ready for friday Oh, brother, you don't even want to know. But at least uh, tomorrow, Friday, is my day off. I actually, I'm doing tomorrow what I never do. And because I realized like after last year, like I take, I I, I don't take all the holidays and I can only carry over so many days. It ends up getting paid out. And I, you know, my wife spends that money before I can spend it on myself. And then, you know, she pays it on depressing things like stuff for the kids and taxes (laughs) and you know, people that don't really deserve my money, right? Uh, okay, now I know I'm going to get some hate for that. But uh, anyways, the, the, the point is I've got tomorrow off. So, you know, maybe the hair doesn't look great underneath the cap, but I, I feel great. And I'm going to watch free practice tomorrow. So my day partially is already set. That's, okay. that's awesome. Moving along to the next story. What's up next? Where do we go? Uh, that's another Porsche F1. Let's go on to this one. Oh, that's the Alpha. We already talked about this. Oh, okay. Do we really need to talk about this? The the and so Formula One apparently is going to try trialing the reverse. Pardon me, a revised qualifying format. I shouldn't say what do we need to talk about. I thought at first when I was looking at the notes, I thought it said reverse qualifying. So I was thinking <laughs> all the reverse grid. I was like, no, please don't do that. But let's see. So they're, you know, they're going to look at the, um, the the format again at a, a couple of different races next year. And they're going to see some of the uh, or all the participants in Q1 use the hard compound tires and then switch to medium tires for a Q2. 
The top 10 who uh, progressed to Q3 will then have to use the soft compound tire. So I don't know really what to, to make of this one, Mark. Like I, I'm all for trying to tweak the qualifying format or the race format or whatever it does, but I, I, I'm not really too sure what to make of this. I, I guess it's kind of interesting. I mean, at least from the team's point of view, it will give them the opportunity to see all three compounds in action but you know if your car's not really set up to run on the hards or the mediums or the softs or whatever it might be it could make qualifying a little bit trickier so maybe qualifying is going to get a little bit more cerebral a little bit more academic rather than just go out there and throw the best you know the you know the, the softs on there the mediums or whatever it is that uh, you need to get through to the next uh, the, the next uh, round of qualifying and then just go at it again so I don't know. I, I think I could be convinced about it. So, you know, do your best. Convince me or or not. You know, try and try and help me uh, get off the fence here. You know, just state your case one so way I'm or just, another. I'm just reading this article again because I'm still trying to process this one on the fly. So the new format, and this is from speedcafe.com. The new format will see all participants in qualifying one use the hard compound. So all yes. 20 drivers will start on the hard. Everybody that gets to Q2 will graduate to a medium tire. And then the 10 runners who then progress to Q3 will have to use the soft compounds. So you're being, the sport is dictating what compounds you run. And, and you're right that I think oftentimes we go into qualifying and teams just want to be able to put down the fastest lap possible. So they put on mm -hmm. the softest compound tire that's available to them that weekend. And then they set up the car accordingly, depending on the track. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know what to make of this. On the one hand, I'm a little bit offended because I just want to see the fastest possible lap times. And maybe we still get it because re the reality is Mercedes, Red Bull, Ferrari, the times they're putting into Q1 are simply fast enough to get them into Q2. They're, they're not putting in a Q3 mm -hmm. type of lap, right? And then ultimately, when you get to Q3 in this scenario, in this proposed revised qualifying format, they're going to be on the softs anyway. So to your point, maybe it's just about creating a little bit more, making it a little bit more academic, to, to your point, making it a little bit more tactical, a little bit more strategic. I'm just relieved they got rid of that terrible rule last year that indicated you had to start the race on your Q2 tire. But yeah. yeah, this is this is interesting. I, I'm not necessarily sure what the motivation for this is because I don't I don't hear a lot of people criticizing qualifying. I, I quite like the structure. What about you? Yeah, I, I've always liked this uh, this format they've had for what the last twenty or twenty five years. It's been around for a very very long time. But where I see this one getting kind of interesting is that okay, you you're going to have to maybe have a bit of a you know, pun intended here, your setup's going to be a little bit more middle of the road. So it can't be completely set up to perform best on the soft compounds or the mediums or whatever. But then I see it interesting because, you know, if you've got to go on Q1 on the hards, maybe it takes you a little bit longer to get those tires up to temperature. Maybe instead of one outlap, maybe you've got to do two or three. So you're spending a little bit more time out on the track. You got to fuel the car a little bit more. So, you, you, you know, the car is going to be heavier. So there's going to be extra brain work that's going to have to go in there so that you know if you're going out to do two uh two laps before you have your hot lap you have to know by the time you hit that start finish line that you know your car is as light as it needs to be and that those those uh hard tires are up to temperature so that's where i see it's interesting but like you say that i don't really know where the motivation for this comes from either i think it's interesting but out of all the things that's 
you know, that that seemed to need improvement. This didn't really need, seem to me to be top of the list. I mean, because I they seem so very, you know, buoyant on the whole sprint race thing. And, you know, they're, they're still that that still isn't perfected yet. I would have thought, if anything, they would try to get all the, the, the bugs out of the whole sprint race thing and get that to the and, and get people really excited about that rather than maybe tinkering around with the existing qualifying format. But hey, that's just me. Yeah. I don't think I have a lot more to add to the story, but I'm hoping, and I don't know if it made it to our notes, but there was a story about Alfa Romeo Sauber. I'm hoping to comment on real quickly if you're open to that. Hey, I'm I'm open, my friend. Go for it. So there was an interesting article that came out. And I shouldn't say article. I think I'm giving them far too much credit, but there was a story on planetf1.com this week, and it quoted a couple of people close to the current Alfa Romeo Sauber partnership. And if you if you look at the list of constructors in Formula One right now, you see the Alfa Romeo F1 team. And while Alfa Romeo is on the grid, it's effectively on the grid in name only. It's effectively a branding exercise. And by that, I mean, there's a Formula One team called Sauber. And I think because you and I have been watching Formula One for so long, we often refer to Alfa Romeo as Sauber or use that Mm -hmm. name interchangeably. Alfa Romeo is effectively paying Sauber to put their name on the car. It is it is a branding exercise. They are not imparting any technical know-how to Sauber. Sauber is developing the car. They're buying parts from Ferrari. They're developing some parts themselves. But Alfa Romeo is effectively just a title sponsor. But I thought it was interesting because Jean-Philippe Impardo, the Alfa Romeo CEO, recently confirmed that Alfa Romeo is in fact reviewing their partnership with Sauber and deciding whether or not they want to renew that agreement. And it's something they, they hope to do by July. In this, there's been conversations about whether there's a right way or a wrong way for a manufacturer to be involved with the sport. So Mm, Formula mm -hmm. One always has an appetite for more manufacturers. They want to make the sport enticing. They want Honda involved and they want Porsche involved and they want Mercedes involved. But the argument here, and I thought this one was a really interesting conversation. The the argument here is that maybe there's ways to get manufacturers involved in non-conventional ways, meaning, hey, they come, they bring money, they put their badge on the car, but maybe they're not necessarily developing an engine. And I'd never really thought of it like that. To me, Alfa Romeo isn't a real F1 team because it is that branding exercise, but it was an interesting argument that maybe more manufacturers can be involved in unconventional ways because maybe they don't have to be building their own engine. Maybe they don't have to own their own factory and be developing their own parts, but there's other ways they can be involved that said, I also think that Sauber is possibly a prime takeover target for Audi and possibly the most likely at this point. So the Alfa Romeo partnership that we see today may not be long for this world anyways, which is one of the reasons why they might be so eager to renew and decide if that partnership's going to move on in, in the long term. But I thought it was just an interesting article and not something that had really ever occurred to me that, hey, manufacturers can be involved in the sport and maybe they can be involved in the sport without actually developing their own power unit. You know, the other thing that uh, I thought was kind of interesting uh, while you're talking there is that, uh, in, and we've mentioned it several times on the show tonight, is that um, Sauber is perhaps one of those teams that could be a target for a takeover by Audi. But it kind of makes you wonder now what's going on inside the world headquarters of Andretti Motorsport. Because that oh, story, you know, yeah. I mean, that's gone kind of quiet because, I mean, there was that there was a lot of smoke around that uh, story last year that what was Michael prepared to drop was like a quarter billion to buy the it team or something enough. or 300 it wasn't enough. 
Well, yeah, obviously it wasn't, but I mean that, you know, that story never really died because, you know, uh, Michael kept saying that, you know, they want to get into Formula One. They want to launch their own team. Total comes back and said, okay, sure, you can come to Formula One, but make sure, you know, you bring a billion dollars to the table because that's what it's going to take to to get this thing up and running. And, you know, Michael Andretti basically said, and this is just my summary of the whole thing is he basically kind of i would say he blew it off but he basically said yeah no problem you know we we, we've 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 got the money we have the access to the money so i'm really interested to see where this might go with the andretti motorsports uh organization and see I'm, i'm sure they're obviously still interested to get into formula one personally i hope that ship hasn't sailed i'd love to see see them get into the sport and see what they could do I completely understand, though, why the FIA and Formula One aren't eager to add new teams to the grid. And I think we know that when Audi comes in, their their hope, their desire is probably to buy an existing team, so not add an incremental team to the grid. And Porsche yeah. is very likely to partner with Red Bull and have some sort of very integrated technical relationship. But I think the reason Formula One isn't eager to add a new team at this point is simply because the value of the teams should skyrocket in the coming years that a team shouldn't be worth two or three hundred million dollars. The team should be worth a billion dollars. And I think mm-hmm. what Formula One and Lib- the FIA and, and Liberty are hoping is that, hey, if we space this out two or three years, a new entry to the grid could pay. We, we talk about this in North American sports all the time, an expansion fee that, hey, we want to join your league. We get a permanent place on the calendar, but you have to pay that expansion fee in the NHL it's 700. $800 million. And the NFL, yeah. it would be billions of dollars. Billions, the NBA would yeah. probably be billions of dollars. But I think Formula One say, hey, you know what? The baseline today is $200 million to enter. If we wait three years, maybe that entry fee is a billion dollars. And that money would be spent, split amongst the existing teams. So I think the existing teams are motivated not to allow a new team onto the grid. So I totally. think there's probably new teams coming, but I think they're a ways off unless somebody comes along and just wows them unless there's a Penske offer and not a Penske offer, but an Andretti offer. And he's got new backing and he comes and says, look, here's $800 million cash. We've committed $200 million to new factory. We have a power unit agreement with Alpine Renault. We're good to go. And maybe it's an offer. The sport just can't resist, but the $200 million that was mm-hmm. bantied about a couple of months ago is nothing. And formula one has scoffed at that. And when you split that 10 ways over the existing grid, $20 million a team is insignificant. They would want a significant cut because remember, by adding an existing a new team to the grid, it dilutes the share of the prize money that's available sure. to the other teams. And the only way you can entice teams to allow a new team under the grid is that upfront lump sum fee they would get by allowing a new team under the grid. Yeah, but it also makes you wonder what uh, Andretti's playbook is, right? Maybe the the whole idea from right from the get go was to buy a slot on the grid. But maybe they had, um, you know, maybe there was some rumors like, you know what, Sauber is willing to sell up now. So maybe we just go in there, offer them, say, a quarter billion dollars two three hundred billion dollars, whatever it is. See if they take it, because if they take it, hey, we're, you know, we're, we're in and we're we're going to be spending a fraction of what we expected to. Then if not, then we're going to have to go the long way, potentially the harder way. But which, you know, we're, we're, we're prepared for, but you know, why not, why not just try and offer one of the existing teams an offer? Because you just don't know, maybe somebody's ready to say like Peter Sauber, like, Hey, you know what? I've done my bit. I, here you go. Here's the keys to the front door. 
have at her boys and uh, you know walk away. So who knows? I right? think I think Andretti and his group will probably look back with great regret on that Sauber piece, and it may ultimately have been that that Peter Sauber and the group were simply in a position where, hey, we're willing to sell a chunk of the team, but we want to retain a chunk and we want to retain control. Uh, yeah. But it could also just be that the Andretti group couldn't bring together enough money to buy the team outright. And mm-hmm. maybe that amount was four or $500 million. But I think in a year or so, that $500 million will have looked like a bargain, kind of like our real estate market that you look back in 2014 <laughs> and a detached single family home was 800K and everyone thought that was crazy. But that same home now, eight years later is $2.2 million. Exactly and look right. back like, what was I thinking in 2014? I think we'll probably see the same increase in valuations for F1 teams because you know we we look at the NBA there's 30 mm-hmm. teams and there's 32 NFL teams and 30 major league baseball teams and how many teams across uh Serie A and the premiership there's dozens of teams in Formula 1 there are 10 teams 10 teams if you want to be a part of that club there's only 10 options and two of them are owned by Red Bull so really there's only eight aside mm-hmm. from those Red Bull teams Oh man, I love how you mentioned like the the two Red Bull teams without going on to a complete rant. You oh, you're you're growing up. I'm so speaking proud of, of you. Which, <laughs> speaking of which, I feel that this is a perfect opportunity for Formula One and the FIA to mandate the sale of Alpha Tauri. They should go to Red Bull and say, look. This this whole world, this whole weird scenario where you can own 20% of the grid, it's over. I am forcing you to sell Alpha Tauri to Audi or off with your head. That's what I think should happen. Wow. I, I was like regretting that because I feel like I, I poked <laughs> the bear, but you, you kept your, your rants oh nice and short and concise. So good for you. Anyway, so let's take a quick break. And when we come back, a bit of an unpleasant story to talk about, but uh, we'll discuss it nonetheless. So don't go away. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. All right. Well, welcome back to the program. And yes, well, this is a story which is a a little bit kind of weird, but I suppose in this day and age, it's not really a shock. But I guess the context of it is and who's involved is makes it a little bit, I don't want to say interesting, but it's it's a very peculiar story. And this is... um, a story involving Lewis Hamilton and his former employer, McLaren, who are apparently investigating an employee's abusive treatment of uh, Lewis Hamilton and rants and tirades on social media, which went on for apparently years. The accounts have been uh, deleted, but it's, you know, this is this is a weird one. Anyways, Mark, uh, did you want to talk about this one a little bit further? 
It is very, very peculiar. So it's being reported by a number of different outlets within the Formula One world that an McLaren employee, like you said, shockingly, not for a few weeks, not over a, a Grand Prix weekend, but for years had been spewing abuse towards Lewis Hamilton on his personal Twitter and personal Facebook accounts. And and it's shocking because on the one hand, you would think that somebody that is employed by a Formula One team would have the self-awareness and wherewithal mm -hmm. to recognize that they are an ambassador of that team. But it's also equally as shocking that nobody else within that McLaren team had for years noticed or been made aware of the fact that a member, an employee, a paid staffer on their team was spitting vile abuse towards a driver of, of another team. I thought this story was weird. And I think the weirdest thing about this was the fact that it just went on for so, so, so long, especially too, when you think about the fact that Lewis was also a member of that team and is still yes. generally thought of very, very highly amongst the the, the McLaren staffers, especially those that were there back in 2007. Of course, mm -hmm. he 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 won a driver's championship driving for that team, but obviously it's it's horrendous. There's no place for this, and there should be absolutely zero tolerance from these teams. And I promise you, every other team right now is reviewing their social media policies with their staffers. And I work for a great company, and we have a social media policy when it comes to yeah. discussing our company yep. and things we should say and shouldn't say online, and how we should. Engage with criticism of our company is just shocking that in 2021 this could have happened. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But uh, just to further to that point, I mean, a lot of companies, a lot of employers have policies around social media right now. And even if they don't, I mean, you could go online and start spewing a lot of unpleasant things on any topic, whatever it might be. And, you know, you could make the argument, well, you know, that's none of my employer's business. But, you know, I, I've heard cases where people, not not anybody that I know personally, but I've heard these stories pop up in the news occasionally that somebody's done some particularly egregious things on social media and, uh, you know, said some very horrible things. And they've actually been sacked by their, you know, their employer just because of the, the horrible nature of what they said the hatred, whatever it was that, uh, you know, it, because it's it's easy to figure out what, what people do these days. I mean, our digital footprints are so big, it's easy to to figure out. But this, this is just uh, going back to this Lewis Hamilton one. You know, it is just it's strange, too, that it would persist for so long. It wasn't just after, say, last year at the, the end of the season that it was one or two things or one Twitter rant or something like that. But it went on for many, many years on multiple platforms, no yeah. less. And it's sometimes, uh, you know, posting or adding Lewis Hamilton directly or re uh, replying to Lewis, uh, Lewis's posts. It's just uh, it, it's strange, but it, it kind of makes you wonder because apparently the, the accounts have been deleted. But, you know, it would be interesting if it said John or Jane Doe, you know, I work for McLaren. I have the coolest job on the face of the planet. Yeah. So it kind of makes you wonder. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is kind of like the, the, the last that we hear of it. Because, you know, it, it would be a little bit, um, I mean, number one, it, it's not cool to do stuff like that. But number two, it would be embarrassing for for McLaren potentially as well. Not not that embarrassment should be, uh, you know, their sole motivation to 
kind of sweep it under the rug, but I mean, it, it, it has a negative reflection on them regardless, right? Definitely. McLaren PR took to Twitter to assure that these messages would be investigating, and I'm quoting from planetf1.com, making it clear that they do not align in any way with their values, the social media posts. Yep. And, and I quote, we consider these comments to be completely at odds with our values and culture at McLaren. The statement read, we take the matter extremely seriously and are investigating it as a priority. Now, I don't know about you, and and I, I'm not joking here. I'm not trying to be lighthearted, but when sure. I do take to social media, I have in the back of my mind that whether I'm a, commenting on something that's related to my employer or the business that I'm in, or mm-hmm. whether I'm commenting on something related to F1, I recognize that I'm indirectly or directly an ambassador or a representative of my employer. And also, especially when it comes to the topic of Formula One, I recognize that I am also an ambassador and a representative of this podcast. And I think for both of us, and this might be one of the reasons that we get along so well, is we have fairly high standards when it comes to to integrity and and how we show respect to each other and how we show respect to our listeners and how we exactly. show respect yep. to everyone involved in the sport. So I would be very cautious about what I say. And frankly, there have been a couple of times when I've tweeted things from my personal account and they've kind of been angry, ranty things. And I think about it, does that look good? Does that reflect well on me? Does that reflect well on the show? Does that reflect well on my employer? And a year from now, would I look back at that tweet and be proud of the fact that I posted that? And if the answer is no, I quickly delete it or I, I don't post it at all. And I know you're exactly the same same way as I am. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you just want to make sure that uh, you stay on the right side of these things, just make sure you tweet lot, lots of cute cat and puppy things. <laughs> Totally, totally. I don't know. Yeah, but stay, on, stay be... on the safe side. Stay yeah. on safe. Lots I don't of know, hearts, but, it, but in this lots day of puppy and age, memes. Yeah, but in this day and age, there's there's going to be people out there that are puppy haters. You know that those people are out there and they exist. And no, they're those... cat people. Yeah. <laughs> are well, you a cat person the... or a dog person? Do you have any pets? Yeah, we do. We have uh, we have a, a little Baltese uh, poodle, and um, his name is Nico. Uh, just because we no. like the name. No yes. way. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's it's just uh, it's not because we're like uh, huge Nico Rosberg fans, but it's just we really like the name. So, and I, and uh, we don't have a cat, and the only reason why we don't have cats is I'm a I'm allergic to cats. Like I'm not allergic to anything, but when I whenever I cross cat paths with a cat, I just start sneezy, my nose runs, and everything. I think they're great animals. I love cats. It's just I can't come within about forty feet of one. So, oh man, it is what it is. Yeah. Full dis- full disclosure as well for several weeks before he was born our son's name was actually nico that we were actually we were struggling immensely we loved the name like nico was just such a great name but we struggled so badly what a mashup nico hamilton whoa that would blow some minds it was going to be nico (laughs) hamilton and we ultimately pulled we ultimately pulled the parachute on that one pretty quickly um and it kind of went with the safe route with Lewis, but yeah. Oh, and I completely forgot because I I did go to your house that one time way back in like January of 2020 on the cusp of COVID. And I remember you had a dog. Yeah, you know, well, that is still such a, a weird moment because I still think that uh, that night that we sat down was you, me, Gil, your former yep. uh, podcast partner from Flash F1, yep. and then Tim. And for me, that that was like the last normal thing before the whole COVID thing really kicked off. And it's just, it's just so weird. But hey, talking about people with great names, guess who just dropped into the live chat? 
Micah Boyce, a.k.a. DJ Vinyl Richie. Is that oh! not an awesome Twitter handle? I love the that. The man uh, that is solely, yeah. and I shouldn't say solely because there's a team that helped to make this happen, but the gentleman, the the man, the ambassador, the myth, the legend who made our new intro and outro music possible. Micah, thank you so much, my friend. I, can't, I, I know I've thanked you a thousand times, but I can't thank you enough for making that happen yeah. for us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a, a million thanks. But still, I think, I think that's got to be one of the best Twitter handles I know. DJ Vinyl Richie. Love it. Anyways, talking about great names, Rogro, Roman Grosjean, is being accused of over his or overstaying his welcome in IndyCar after disputing seventh place with Graham Rahal at uh, the Grand Prix of Alabama. Anyways, uh, Graham had to say, quote, I think it's clear. Just watch the in-car camera and look at the angle of his head. I knew Roman was going to dive bomb me because I'd already been warned that that's what he's doing. We were already straight there. Why are you turning into me? I'm just frustrated because this isn't the first time at St. Pete. He had, he hit everybody he could hit. We come here. He hit Rossi. He had at Herda and he hit me. At some point, we've got to clean up our acts. Uh, anyways, he goes on uh, to say, quote, I won't name, but as another driver in the series told me, you can't teach an old dog new tricks and it's been his reputation over his whole career in Europe and we're learning his reputation quickly here. So to me, if race control doesn't want to do anything, then they're not going to do anything. But when we go and punt him, they better not do anything to me, which in the past I've been penalized for a lot less than that. End quote. Anyways, uh, Graham does go on uh, to say uh, at the very end, he says, quote, I think the other drivers need to get together, all of us, because I'm not the only one who's got a problem. I think it's quite a significant amount of drivers who've had run-ins with this guy. When the roles are reversed, uh, fishing better be consistent. That's all I'll say, because it's going to be reversed at some stage, and I'm not going to play nice. This guy's overstayed his welcome. End quote. Whoa. Graham, bro, <laughs> tell us how you really feel my goodness oh but, my like i mean I, that is like like that's he's obviously going off but does that not does graham rahal not come across as a guy that feels like he's had something bottled up inside of him about roman grosjean for a, a long time and he just could not keep it internalized any longer and it just exploded out there i mean wow so there was a for starters there was a borderline threat in there that the the officials better not touch me when i quote unquote punt him in when i make <laughs> contact with him i i, I do like this and over in North America, I think hockey players are often criticized for when they're being interviewed by a reporter, hockey talk, hockey talk. We gave it 100% and we passed the puck and we did our best and team play. Our backs are up against the wall. Our, and- our backs are up against the wall, blah, 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 blah. Formula One's kind of like that in the sense that you don't get a lot of really juicy slander from the drivers towards each other. That The paddock's pretty close and tightly integrated. In the world of indie, that doesn't seem to be the case at all it's gloves off but these Mm -hmm. were fiery quotes from from ray hall and incidentally i would be very honest people have a very they have a very rose-colored perspective of roman grosjean's formula one career that seemed to have pivoted the moment he had that horrifying crash in Bahrain. all of a sudden the narrative of his career changed and he became a much more sympathetic character. And I think people were quick to forget a lot of his 
on track incidents and and uh, contact in Formula One. Now, I don't think his history, his shenanigans. <laughs> I don't think it warrants the rant that Ray Hall had. I also I also take exception to the fact that Ray Hall dismisses his Formula One career as over in Europe. I find that <laughs> to be a little bit disingenuous and a little bit snooty. But yeah, what fiery comments indeed. Yeah. You know, th- this is just an observation uh, on my behalf. So just uh, take it for, for what it's worth. But, you know, I, I couldn't help uh, but laugh when you were you, the old, the only thing you didn't ta- mention in your impersonation of an NHL player was the, the use of the word the code, you know, the infamous hockey code. Um, anyways, my my observation in years of the interviewing athletes and um, coaches and just anybody at like a, the, the pro sports level is that the people that are less comfortable with the media stuff sometimes tend to be a little bit more guarded. They're the ones that tend to use those those uh, those cliches only because they're just not comfortable having a microphone stuck in their face or somebody scribbling down notes and things like that. And they just uh, find it a little bit difficult for whatever reason. Maybe they just uh, they, they don't know how to communicate properly. Maybe they're just not comfortable. Maybe it's a combination. But the ones that uh, that, that that are the best are the, uh, the the ones that are just so genuine. I mean, the best. <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not getting emotional here. But the the, the best press conference I ever went to uh, for an MLS game in Vancouver was after the LA Galaxy came here. This is probably about five years ago. And was they, Bruce the, Arena still around? Yes, then? and yeah. and that's exactly the point that I was trying to get to because I thought so. It, you know, love him or hate him. I mean, Bruce, he, he had, you know, he's arrogant. He's, you know, he's got this sort of aura around him. And I remember sitting in the, uh, in the media room afterwards, waiting for the different players and coaches to come in for the, the press conference afterwards. And Bruce kind of comes in, you know, you could tell he was happy because they had a good night at the office and he sat down answered questions. He, he was disinterested the entire time. And it was funny because, um, you know, one reporter, one of the local guys asked uh, Bruce a question. He sort of sits there for a, a second or two, takes a, 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 you know, a long pull off a, 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 a you know, a bottle of uh, a bottle of water. Then he takes another thing or, you know, and or just pauses for another second. Then he uh, turns to the mic, then looks at the guy and he says, really, is that what you think? No, I don't see it that way at all. And just completely blew the guy off. And then the next person that uh, asked a question, you know, completely different thing. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's one of those people you you kind of love them or hate them, but it was kind of cool because you just kind of felt that, okay, he's kind of an arrogant, you know what, but, you know, he's, you know, at least he's doesn't have this kind of shell around him. So anyways, it's just kind of a, a bit of an observation on my I own behalf. I don't think the personnel and it's funny because i knew exactly where you're going because i've been in quite a few press conferences with bruce arenas and yeah. he could be he could be a little bit cranky and disinterested and he just wants to get on yep. the bus and get back to the hotel but yeah, exactly. i think <laughs> in, in the world of formula one these team principles themselves have become a celebrity and the drivers are certainly celebrities and oh, i don't totally. think any of them can afford to be dismissive towards the media because they mm. need to champion the media behind their cause so they get positive coverage and the narrative yeah. around them is positive. And I don't doubt for a second that every driver, team principal, anyone who reps the team, I don't doubt for a second they get significant coaching from people within their organization, especially young drivers and especially those drivers that maybe don't speak English as a first language. They probably get extensive coaching on how to approach a question and how to answer a question and how 
how to phrase a response. And, and I think that what we get from the F1 media is one, it's sanitized because I think the F1 media themselves are far too friendly, but I think that the drivers themselves are very, very well prepared and very well coached. And I think we've seen glimpses of that as well in drive to survive where typically the handlers are feeding the drivers the questions before they even get there so they can start processing their responses or they meet before the media sessions to brainstorm what their responses would be to difficult questions. Yeah, that's a great point because you don't always see it, but sometimes when you get that sort of... um maybe not the zoom in shot, but you'll see the uh, the team representative, their PR person standing beside them. So you got all the microphones in their face for the, uh, the rep- well, back in the day before COVID, when you could have like 40 people standing two inches away from your face with a microphone before you got all grossed out about it, which was kind of gross to begin with COVID or not. But uh, regardless, you know, you would see that there would be one of these PR people beside the driver and uh, with, with a little rec- recorder recording everything. I was always interested after is like, like what do they do do they go back and do they dissect this and they they they, they must get coached about it. i mean it's something that we, we obviously don't see out here but it um it's it's an interesting world for sure do when you it comes remember to that things. episode of the most recent drive to survive where there was a a meeting between the handlers and and i don't mean that in a disingenuous way i i i mean Obviously, Are you talking the, about the Ferrari one? The Ferrari no, episode? No, the, the McLaren episode where Daniel Ricardo and Lando and the team were sitting around because Lando had just signed a contract extension. Yes, yeah, right. And, and, yep. and obviously Daniel wanted to have a lot of fun with it and the team and Lando were having no business. Like They didn't want to get into the specifics of the value of the contract. They didn't want to get into the specifics of the term. And of course, they were, just, they were kind of wheeling Daniel back in to make sure that he was like marching to team orders in terms of how to respond to any questions about Lando's Mm. contract. But I thought that was a perfect example of how tightly managed these drivers are so that they can trumpet the the team message around certain issues and topics yeah but you know that's not unusual because there's some of the things that i'm involved in like uh on some of the things i work on outside like at work and professionally that you know you can sit on like a like a board or another group and that you know you can sit there in an internal meeting you can discuss and debate things and you can you can be at loggerheads you can disagree sometimes or disagree passionately with uh, somebody in the same group but then after decision is reached and then when you know you go and present whatever it is to to the public or you know if it's an executive uh council or whatever and then you go to like your your say your general membership you have like your general meeting that okay you and i mark and mark we disagreed on the purchase of widgets or this policy or whatever but as soon as that executive uh, or that board meeting is over and you go into that general meeting with the rest of your council or group or whatever it is that that's what that stays no, not that you and I would ever disagree because, you know, we get along too, probably too good. But, but yeah, the thing is that what, once once that executive um, uh, council meeting is over, that that stays in that meeting that as a as an executive, you then go to the, the, the rest of your council or, you know, your association, your whatever it is as a unified group. So, I mean, I, it, it looks kind of funny when you kind of look at it that way, um, when you look at a DTS, but if you kind of, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, I'm special in any of that sort of way, but just in some of the other experience that I've, that I've had that, you know, from that sort of similar type situations, yeah, it's okay to do that. But when you're facing the general public or whoever, you want to have like a, a unified 
approach to it or a unified message? Not that I want to have a theme of talking about The Office during every one of our podcasts, but as you were describing that scenario, I recall that episode of The Office when there was a shareholder meeting for Dunder Mifflin when the company was really struggling, (laughs) and they had the panel of the board of directors up at the front and all the angry shareholders, and they would go in, the the, the board of directors would go into that plush suite, and they'd be like, we're screwed, but they would go back onto the panel, and they would try to be totally aligned in their message, and then Michael blew it all up. We're going to go back, and we're going to be back in an hour with a 20-point plan, and they're all looking like, there's no 20-point Anyways, I don't want to derail, but I could talk about The Office a lot. Well, I got a question for you. If you were an employee at Dunder Mifflin, do you think that you would have been admitted to the most exclusive club in the office, the the Finer Things Club, or would that be a little bit too much of a lofty ambition for you? I know I would be working in the annex. I I think that that's a a, a given, but I don't think I would have been in, I don't think I would have made the cut for the Finer Things Club. Yeah, sadly, neither do I. I, I, I'd be one of those people that would aspire to the Finer Things Club, but I I don't think I would have made the cut uh, either. Anyways, moving along, because that has a little bit of a a, a depressing tinge to it. Let's talk about something a little bit more positive and uh, actually something a little bit more timely. Well, actually very timely and appropriate, but the, uh, the drivers are very, very uh, positive and very encouraged about the uh, the sims that they've had for Miami this weekend. And uh, AlphaTauri driver Pierre Gasly has actually come out and said that the, the new Miami track is pretty awesome. Now, that is uh, quite the description or quite the... Uh, pronunciation or what, what do you want to call that pronunciation the exclamation the uh judgment uh passed by uh, the alpha Tauri driver but uh, anyways uh, what uh, pierre had to say when he was asked by autosport.com he said quote i've tried it and i must say it looks pretty awesome i really like the layout quite a lot of high speed content quite challenging unusual type of corners extremely long corners very long straights I think we should have some pretty good American entertainment, good entertainment the whole weekend. So very excited about it. And the location is unique. So very hyped about the weekend. End quote. Uh, Sergio Perez said that the end of the lap is quite tight. We talked about that, I think, with Tim Haraney several episodes ago, where you get to the the, the back of the track, particularly uh, turns 11 through 16, which come onto the back straightaway, where you have some very short, you know, some very uh, sharp 90 degree corners and very short connecting pieces of circuit between between the corners so that's going to be really fun especially in the opening phase of the other the grand prix before the field maybe stretches out a little bit so going around into that last third of the lap especially when you come through that series of five corners there through turns 11 16 should be a lot of fun and also checo said that he thinks that it looks like a pretty good circuit and he's also said particularly about that segment of corners he says it's a twisty area that could be quite difficult to get it right and the visibility can be difficult which almost sounds a little bit jetta-esque does it not i mean the rest of the lap probably not but at least that's uh, one segment totally agree 100 percent agree so we're going to see 57 laps on race day race distance of 308 kilometers to be expected circuit length is 5.4 kilometers and there are what how many turns on this track 19 turns 19 it, i believe yeah it is remarkably jetta-esque to me now it's it's called a street circuit. I think Jet is probably a better definition of a street circuit because it actually incorporates some actual public roadways that get 
homologated or integrated into the track on race day. There's less of that. There's a little bit of that here, but there's less of it. To me, this is very much a dedicated circuit without significant runoff areas. One of the ways that it is going to be comparable to Jeddah is like Jeddah, it's going to be a track that will absolutely punish mistakes because there's no runoff. And if a driver has yep. a mistake or makes a mistake and maybe they just misjudge a corner and they spin or they have a, a slow kind of um, slide, the fact that they're going to go into a concrete wall suggests that we would probably see a lot of yellow flags. We could see a lot of red flags. My sense is that even if it's dry on race day, we could see something that's not entirely different to what we saw at Jeddah. Now, the race should be taking place during daylight hours, unlike Jeddah, which of course is a night race to to mitigate the impacts of the heat uh, in that part of the world. But I would su- suspect that drivers don't have a lot of time to come to grips with what they're facing on this track. And obviously, they've done a lot of sim time. They're going to have a couple of practice sessions and qualifying. But I think there's still a strong likelihood that when you combine the fact that they're driving new cars, they're getting to grips with the new compounds, and it's an entirely new track, I would expect that we're probably going to see some contact and we're going to see some cars making contact with concrete. I think it's going to be a very, very interesting week or weekend. I just, I have no confidence in making any kind of predictions here. Yeah, it's it's too difficult. I mean, it, it seems like, you know, kind of going back to what we were saying right off the top of the show with it, it's become like almost a recurring theme about these new tracks that we have no data and no uh, experience uh, with uh, over totally. the past uh, couple of years. But that in and of itself is a good thing. I mean, it, it's exciting to go somewhere new. I really don't know what to expect this weekend, but I, I think after what happened in Imola and what's happened over the past couple of races for Carlos Sainz, that this is, I wouldn't say a make or break weekend for Ferrari. I mean, it's far too early in the season to say that, but after the the the, the stellar opening they had to the 2022 World Championship, this is a turnaround weekend. This has to be a statement weekend to, to kind of shake off the funk of Imola, where they blew a good thing when they brought um, Charles Leclerc in, and then you know, we all know he slid off and then dropped down through the race order and had to go and change his front wing at the end. And then Carlos Sainz beaching it in the gravel at the start of the race, you know, for the second race in a row after he signed his uh, his contract after Australia. Big re- uh, weekend for Carlos. He's going to want to break out of that funk that he's been stuck in for the past uh, several weeks. Charles want to set things right after Imola. That I mean, just you know, they've got egg on their face, right? It was their home race, and uh, they they got it completely wrong, and they, they need to turn it around because I mean, they look so good through the first couple of races through the through the season, like I said, but also. Max did not put a wheel wrong in Imola. I mean, he he hit a home run in every single session. I mean, he was fastest in qualifying. He won the sprint race. He won the Grand Prix. He had the fastest lap. I mean, he ticked all the boxes. And th- th- that's the thing. I mean, Red Bull had problems with reliability through the first several races of the of the year i mean they had the double dnf to start at uh, bahrain and then uh, max has had his own problems checo's had you know he's had his moments as well but they haven't they haven't been consistent and we saw in imola not only were they reliable but they were fast and ferrari you know they're they're going to want to reassert themselves because you know otherwise if they start to regress and go backwards we could be sitting here at the end of the year and saying well you know it started really good for Ferrari but it was almost like they were a one hit wonder because after six weeks into the year they completely blew up and then their season went downhill from there which would be a shame because their car is obviously fast it's obviously competitive so they need to turn it around this weekend for sure. 
Oh, unmute yourself. I'm here. I'm a pro. <laughs> you don't need sure. to tell me. You probably do because I would have gone on for a very long time. <laughs> if you look at the if you look at the race classification for Imola, it obviously yep. seems to favor Red Bull, right? That at a glance, Max finished first. He was 16 seconds ahead of Sergio, who had a great weekend himself, scored maximum yep. points considering how great Max was. Lando had the surprise podium, and you have to go all the way down to sixth place to find Ferrari. Now Obviously, Charles had made a mistake and he probably should have been on the podium, but I did come away from that race with this nagging feeling inside of me or this nagging anxiety that maybe what we're beginning to see is that as Red Bull quells their reliability issues, all of which can be traced back to the fuel cell and all of most all of which are transferable components that they are forced or not transferable standardized components that they're forced to buy from a supplier that if they've addressed or resolved or identify those reliability issues, my fear at this point is, hey, Ferrari looked great, but they looked great in the absence of competitive Red Bulls because they kept DNFing. Now that we're four races in and we are starting to see these Red Bull 1-2s, what's to suggest the rest of the championship isn't comparable that we hope we hope you know my mercedes is going to bring some upgrades this weekend we expect to see a new front wing we expect to see a new rear wing maybe those upgrades will help but my bigger fear is does red bull just start to build on this lead because Carlos Sainz has been incredibly unreliable this year. And that all comes mm-hmm. down to his driving and his mistakes. And I know he got collected by, I know he got collected by Ricardo at the start of the race at Imola, but I will always assign equal amounts of blame to Carlos in that situation because he'd be qualified better and he put himself in a better position at the start yep. of the race. He should never have been in the middle of the pack that you, you are playing a dangerous game when you don't qualify well, or you have a bad start because you're going to put yourself into traffic and you're away totally. from clean air. But my fear at this point is Red Bull suddenly looks great. And Sergio, who to me was a mark of disappointment last year for Red Bull. And remember, he's out of contract at the end of this year. So he is two thirds of the season. It took him like I'd say legit two two thirds of the year before he finally started filling in that role that they really needed him to. Because I think what we were talking about with Tim uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I, I said at that point that that I, I really feel now that they have that one-two punch with Max yes. and Checo that they had, you know, they haven't had for three or four years going back to like 2018 and before when it was Max and Danny Rick. I mean, how I mean, they weren't winning all the time, but they were, they, they were scoring a lot of points and winning races when they weren't at their, at, at the peak when they were really super uber competitive and it's and- yeah it's it's early but i've never yep. been so confident in in sergio as i am right now last year admittedly i felt he was a disappointment and i thought yep. if he had raced up to the capability of that car and again it was a big transition for him right to go to a honda power oh, for sure red bull yep. car having spent the last 10 years driving mercedes powered cars it was a big transition for him but had he been as competitive last year as is this year Red Bull should have won both of the titles. They should have won the constructors and they should have won the driver's title. Totally. Comfortably because Sergio would have been taking or should have been taking points off of Lewis throughout the season. And it should never have been that close when you got down to the final race. But Red Bull looks surprisingly good. And what I fear is that, hey, we saw some great flashes from Ferrari at the beginning of the season that weren't sustainable. Well, and, and that's the thing too, right? And you, you, I think, really made a great observation is that uh, Ferrari, they were doing it, doing what they were doing when in in lack or without the um, 
you know competitiveness from from the you know the other teams that you expect because Mercedes has disappointed uh, thus far. I mean, Lewis is obviously struggling. George has uh, done better, but you know as, as we've um, we've sort of speculated on before, that maybe doesn't mean that he's a better driver than Lewis Hamilton. But Lewis has typically had the best car on the grid, and uh, George hasn't. So he's he's built up that skill set of learning to extract more out of a car that maybe isn't the best, and 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 just kind of learn to work with that so Lewis I think will figure the car out at, at some point and whether or not they can get it figured out to become competitive or not that remains to be seen because as uh, as the case may be is that at some point Mercedes might just give up on trying to extract any more performance out of this car and just think you know we're, we're better off put throwing these resources into developing the car for 23 rather than trying to you know get the you know uncork the genie let the GD out of the bottle the W13 because you know they only have but so much that they can they can do with it and they only have so much room under the budget cap to do that with because so i mean there's so many things yeah that's the point i was hoping you were going to make is this is a new era for formula 1 that if this yep. was 5 years ago and mercedes had a bad st- or a bad start hire more people build a new wind tunnel throw money at the problem they may have all the money in the world now but there's a budget cap. And for all we know, yep. Mercedes may be at that cap. They may not have any money to continue developing this car. They may literally have to shut it down. So they have f- fixed expenses. Obviously, they pay a lease. They pay a landlord. They pay a mortgage. They pay their staff. Those are reoccurring expenses that are going to happen sure. every single month. That's part of the budget cap. But the reality is they may be at the budget cap right now. Aside from that, they may not have any financial resources to commit to this car. So at some point, they may just have to shut it down because they're out of money and then their season's done. Well, you know, maybe it was too much of an aggressive uh, design philosophy that they went after, and maybe the W13 becomes a cautionary tale. It's like, we thought that we could have this this absolutely amazing car that had all this untapped potential, but we went too far and too aggressive in the design philosophy that we got caught out because when... When, when the lights turned green and we started racing, we ran out of uh, latitude and we ran out of resources and opportunities to extract the potential out of this car and it was never realized. So maybe when it comes to developing the car and designing the car for 22 or 23, 24, whatever it is, maybe we are a little bit more conservative in our approach to designing that car, realizing, okay, if we knock it out of the park on the the, the very first uh, the, the very first time up to the plate, that's great. But you know, if you don't, if you're sitting up there and uh, it, you know the, it, it's full count, <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? You could either, you know, maybe you get lucky, you get a walk, or you strike out, or you you hit a grand slam. But it's uh, remains to be seen. Anyways, I did want to mention that uh, Pirelli is bringing their mid-range of the tire compounds this weekend, the C2 hard, C3 mediums, and the C4 softs. And I also wanted to mention just looking at the uh, weather forecast for Sunday afternoon. It's going to be 32 degrees Celsius, Celsius, which is about 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Very little chance of uh, precipitation, looking like it might be sunny with like a little bit of cloud or a little bit uh, overcast. So it looks like it's uh, going to be a, a very pleasant afternoon to go racing. So I would imagine that the the track temperatures will translate probably in the mid to the high 40s uh, Celsius. 
so it'll be interesting to see how the uh, that affects the, the the tires for the cars. And uh, I'm really looking forward to a uh, an entertaining race. I'm looking forward to seeing whether or not uh, Ferrari can surprise us again, or if it's going to be Red Bull asserting themselves after a pretty good weekend out at Imola uh, last weekend. Uh, before we go, just wanted to remind everybody of the uh, the current. Uh, standings in the Drivers' World Championship. You have uh, Charles Leclerc still leading the championship with 86 points. Max Verstappen seemingly coming out of nowhere to surge all the way up to second with 59 points. So Charles still has a bit of comfort up at the top of the championship. Sergio Perez is now third in the championship with 54 points. George Russell for Mercedes, 49 points. And then Carlos Sainz, 38 points and Carlos obviously just based on the discussion that we had is uh, left a lot of points out on the track in the past several races couple of races I shouldn't say several over on the constructor side now you have a Ferrari on top 124 points only 11 points ahead of Red Bull we have 113 points and boy did that advantage they had at the top of the constructors evaporate literally in the blink of an eye after the Australian and uh the uh, email, it was Emilia Romagna Grand Prix, Imola Grand Prix. Let's just go with that. That's easier to say. Uh, Mercedes now uh, third in the championship with 77 points. McLaren uh, fourth with 46 points. And then ro- rounding out the top five in the constructors, Alfa Romeo Ferrari with 25 points. Anyways, Mark, uh, anything else to add tonight or should we save the, the the Twitter questions and the mailbag for another night? Yeah, I think we can save that for another night. I, I would plug one thing before we go in. I don't like to say plug because it does a disservice and you and I are really proud of the fact that we only support content and content providers and, and other folks in the F1 industry who produce product that we really enjoy. But if you sure. are interested in a subscription to the Race Weekend magazine, if you want to go to raceweekend.com, theraceweekend.com, the R-A-C-E-W-K-N-D.com, if you use coupon code Scuderia Pod. We will save you 10% off your subscription. And I know a ton of you have already done that. Thank you so much. And as I said on Twitter, we do get a small, humble commission for every subscription that goes through, which we promise we continue to invest in this podcast to make it better. But if you're interested, I wouldn't be repping, I wouldn't be promoting this magazine if it wasn't a fantastic publication. So I encourage you to get out there. And it's worth it to see that, that that big happy grin on Magnus's face every time. Definitely, that, uh, <laughs> definitely, because <laughs> they're doing great work. They really are. I mean, uh, that that there's like you say, we only uh, promote uh, other content uh, that we uh, we we really endorse, and those guys are doing an absolutely fantastic oh, job. Oh, and and hey, yep. it looks like we're probably and I think Tim's. Sunday may take a direction that he's not expecting it, but uh, we are planning to collab with Tim on Sunday for the Grand Prix race recap. And of course he is there. He spent all day today interviewing drivers. I saw him with Lance. I saw him with Magnuson. I saw him with Latifi. He spent the whole day in person interviewing drivers. I'm sure he's going to have a ton to share about his experience at that track and tons and tons of great bits from the drivers as well. 
guy. People accuse us of being homers when it comes to the Canadian drivers. I mean, Tim interviewing Nikki and Lance, that's like interviewing your buds, you know, exactly. <laughs> going out there. So that should, that should be fun to, uh, to, to see what, uh, what he does when he hooks up with uh, both uh, Nick Latifi and Lance Stroll over the course of the weekend. Anyways, guys, that is it for us tonight. Thank you so very much for listening to the show. Thank you to all of you who jumped in and list, or watched on the, uh, the live stream on uh, YouTube. Uh, it's been a, a lot of uh, fun uh, again, and we really look forward to catching up with you guys again on Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening to recap the inaugural Miami Grand Prix. If you want to get in touch with us, the easiest way to do so is on Twitter at f one pod or you can send us an email at f one pod at gmail.com. For some reason, um, everybody's emails have been going into the spam folder. I'm not quite sure why, but anyways, I will catch up with you guys again very, very soon. Soon. And on behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton, thank you so very much uh, for listening. And we'll talk to you guys very, very soon. Enjoy the race. And we'll talk to you again on Sunday night. Bye for now.